Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Peace and blessings of Allah be upon all our listeners. Welcome once again here in Drive Time Show. You're listening to Anika Rahman and I'm joined by Dr. Tariq Bajba here in the, from the London studio of Wasu Islam. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be upon you, Dr. Tariq Bajba. Wa alaikum Peace be on you and all our listeners as well. Today, uh, as you know, we'll be discussing uh, two very important topics which was addressed and first you know especially the first topic was specially addressed by the holy prophet peace be upon him and in the second hour we'll be discussing another topic again i, I would say even though you know that the teachings were there but the holy prophet uh, peace be upon him emphasized that how we should be taking care of them so the first topic which we'll be discussing in the first hour will be girls rights create a brighter and better future we will be discussing this topic in depth that what are the girls right whether they have been given are they given properly or not and what is or uh, what can be done to you know have or uh, you know and, and the rights can be given to them to have this discussion we'll be having some guest who will be you know covering different aspect of today's topic and you can also call us and share your views on 02086877878 and you can visit our website www.voiceofislam.co.uk and tweet at voiceofislam.uk going back to girls right today wednesday you know the 11th of october marks the international day of girl you know girl child and despite increased attention to girls issues in the last decade investments in girls rights remain limited empowering girls to lead you know hear their voices and involve them in decision making is an essential investment in their agency and the future even though girls face you know multiple challenges worsened by crises such as climate change covid-19 and conflict which impact their education well-being and safety and today's show we'll be discussing the need to protect the rights of girls and hope to create or in hope of creating a better future in islam the importance of uh, rights of girls is constantly stressed the khalif of ahmadiyya muslim community his holiness has stated that the holy prophet Muhammad peace be upon him announced that God almighty had especially entrusted to him the task of safeguarding the rights of women he declared in the name of God almighty that man and women by <coughs> virtue of their common humanity were equal to one another and in their coexistence such as man have certain rights over women similarly women have certain rights over man women could own property just like man husbands had no rights to spend the wealth of their spouses unless they willingly gave it to them as a gift so this emphasizes that the man and women have different responsibilities however the right of women must be protected so today the 11th of october of course is uh, international day of the girl child and it's observed all over the world and uh, it was established by the united nations in 2012 to promote gender equality and highlight the challenges faced by girls worldwide 
The day aims to empower girls and address issues such as access to education, child marriage, gender-based violence, and discrimination. It provides a platform to advocate for girls' rights and develop their voices in decision-making processes. The theme for each year's celebration varies, focusing on different aspects of girls' well-being and empowerment. The theme for this year is Invest in Girls' Rights, Our Leadership, Our Well-Being. So that's the theme for this year. Invest in Girls' Rights, Our Leadership, Our Well-Being. Activities and events are organized globally to raise awareness about girls' rights and promote positive change. Prominent figures, organizations, and governments often participate in campaigns and initiatives to support girls' rights. International Day of the Girl Child plays a crucial role in advancing gender equality and improving the lives of girls around the world. The Quran Uh, emphasizes the importance of gender equality, the value of women, and the protection of their rights. For example, in chapter Al-Hujarat, one of the chapters of the Holy Quran stated, uh, O mankind, indeed we have created you from male and female, and made you peoples and tribes that you may know one another. Indeed, the most noble of you, in the sight of Allah, is the most righteous of you. Indeed, Allah is knowing and acquainted. As regards girls' education, while it's clear that education is recognized as a fundamental human right, what makes it so and what role does it play in contemporary society? So above all else, education serves as a means to ensure personal safety while equipping individuals with the knowledge to navigate and avoid potentially hazardous situations by understanding their surroundings. The current generation requires education to access improved employment opportunities and transform themselves into responsible citizens. The realization of the significance of literacy and education is essential for individuals to secure higher income jobs and contribute to the society. Afghanistan, you know, one example of what's happening there. At the very end of December, 2022, that's last year, tens of thousands of women were banned from universities in Afghanistan by Taliban. Already, the Taliban had banned most high school girls from school since August 2022. These girls and women are no longer able to continue education anymore. The new bans really hurt Afghanistan's next generation. Before you associate what's happening in Afghanistan to religion, know that actually the University of Al-Qarabiyin isn't only the oldest university in the world. It was founded by Fatima al-Fahri, a Muslim woman, in 1859 A.D. Um, that's uh, like the middle of the ninth, ninth century. So girls have the right to education as it acts as a catalyst for individual growth and development, shaping the lives of others and fostering the creation of a more prosperous society. Furthermore, education facilitates integration into society and empowers individuals to actively participate in the broader societal context. 
Child marriage is closely related to the girls' education crisis and is one of the significant barriers that hinders girls' access to and completion of education. Child marriage is a global issue affecting girls in various regions around the world. It is especially prevalent in many low-income countries where access to education is already limited. So we, we do have our first guest, uh, I think, uh, online. Yes. So let's uh, speak to them. Uh, we're going to move to now our first guest, as Dr. Tariq Bajwa mentioned. We'll having Shazia Ahmed, a specialist science teacher and a private tutor working in London boroughs. Also a mom of four teenagers and active within the local community teaching religious knowledge to school-aged girls. We're going to move to her. Assalamu alaikum, uh, Shazia Sahib, and thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Shazia, as a specialist science teacher and private tutor, how do you tailor your approach to inspire and encourage girls you know, interested in science education? Um, well, I've been teaching science for a long time, over 20 years. So for me, it's really important that every child that I tutor um, you know, gets slightly inspired about what it is that we're learning about in terms of the world so I think science is such an interesting subject but you know especially regarding girls I think as a woman myself um, my background actually is engineering so there are not a lot of women mm -hmm. engineers um, so I think it's always good to you know emulate those role models um, for our, our young ladies so for them to see uh, what is achievable and um, how they can make a contribution to society and you know that contribution comes in various forms but one of those um, forms is actually to be able to learn yourself so it's only once you learn once you give yourself the opportunity that then you can see where your strengths lie and then you can use those to benefit those around you and so um, yeah I do like to speak to each of the children that I'm choosing Tutoring. Um, so it would be the girls as well as the boys, mentoring them as well as tutoring them, but also when I'm teaching, uh, to give them the opportunity to voice their um, concerns maybe or anything that they're unsure of within um, the subject matter, just to help you know them gain confidence and knowledge within that specific sphere. Um, indeed, thank you very much. Uh, as a mother for, mm -hmm. for four teenagers, how has your personal experience influenced your teaching methods or you know insights into promoting girls education especially in the field of science uh well i, I have my eldest has just recently graduated alhamdulillah from uh, completing a science degree mm. um and so having seen her and having supported her through the various different stages of her learning journey i think um that's actually given me quite an interesting insight as a parent of a child in normal mainstream schools so my children have not gone to private schools they've just gone to normal uh, secondary schools for example mm -hmm. so in that sense you know i do recognize that sometimes um you know as a parent you do have to step in you do have to monitor obviously what your children are doing but also making sure that they're getting the best level of potential education that they can so making sure that i'm emailing the teachers um if i'm uh, maybe a little bit concerned about something that's happening in the classroom um, that making sure that I, I keep my presence there available so that the staff know that she's from a supportive background and that's also very important in my own teaching um, because I am aware that you know 
as girls especially you go through different hormonal imbalances and you can deal with a lot of anxiety there's a lot of social pressure peer pressure when they're in school especially teenage years um it's very important as a parent to make sure that i am there and i'm supporting them through that in the best possible manner but as a teacher to be aware that those things can affect their learning as well very very much right i think is very important uh what what is the importance of teaching religious education to school aged girls especially living in this society well i mean i apart from teaching within the local community um young girls about their kind of like a religious knowledge and and teaching them about being a practicing muslim um and obviously in in schools my my job is to actually be teaching science but i also do volunteer in local schools and i go into schools especially primary schools and um teach them do you know the odd lesson or go and teach them about what it's like being a muslim and i think you know in the society that we're living it's very multicultural multiethnic and then obviously there's lots of people who are practicing lots of different things so it's very important for um muslim girls i think to be able to explain their viewpoint and also to explain their beliefs and practices in a way that then others are able to understand them um and you know as somebody myself who's grown up in the UK mm. who's completed all of my studies here but also has always uh, by the grace of God God been a, a practicing muslim i think it's important for girls to feel confident enough to feel that they can practice that that shouldn't in any way hinder your learning or um the you know the this rate of education that you're getting uh very much right following on can you share how you integrate themes of girls empowerment and girls within your religious knowledge teachings um i think but actually i do something quite similar within my religious knowledge teaching but mm-hmm. also within my uh, teaching as a science teacher so i look for role models so obviously within our um religion we we have lots of very strong female role role models you only look at the life of our beloved holy prophet may peace and blessings well be upon him and we see very strong uh, women role models and the things that they were able to achieve during their lives so it's making sure that our younger generation are actually aware of these role models and what they did in their life and how we can emulate them in the best possible manner and in the same way as in my role as a science teacher i will actively look for um you know females who have contributed in um science and technology and even within engineering and and maths um you kind of like a a jobs and then actually bring them to the forefront and educate girls on the fact that we do have these very strong role models within these particular areas that are not maybe always seen as being uh female friendly and that actually then helps them to see that oh you know there's somebody like me who's doing who's done that who's done very well for themselves um sometimes it can just give them that little bit of motivation to try that little bit of hard, a little bit harder especially you know when you're looking at people from ethnic minorities they they may feel that they're not always um seen or represented inclusively um within a school mainstream school in terms of the people that we look up to and so i think it's quite important to see that range of diversity um and that really does help for children to identify with somebody who looks similar to them and that can help motivate them as well that there is hope for them and that there is something that they can work towards hmm. so in your opinion what kind of initiatives could further you know support and advance girls education in science 
Um, I think, you know, it is to uh, give girls the opportunity to uh, study different factions of science. I mean, obviously, at the moment, the curriculum is quite heavy for science up to GCSE, for example. But, you know, the kind of topics that are being taught at GCSE are not the only things that are being that are science related. So those kind of topics that maybe are not taught so much, but are quite interesting, you know, science in current affairs, new breakthroughs. I think all of these things are really, really important to um, advertise in schools so that then students are aware of all these new breakthroughs that are going on and the fact that science is changing all the time with as our understanding is becoming uh, better and better and so then there's a level of excitement there that then can really infuse students you know girls as well as boys to to want to be a part of that um, journey you know for the betterment of the future. Uh, indeed. Thank you very much, uh, Shazi Ahmed, for joining us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and I hope our listeners have, uh, you know, uh, got benefit from this and understood mm-hmm. how they should, uh, you know, uh, what they should be doing as a parent and their home. Thank you very much for joining us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Have a nice evening. Yeah, thank you very much. Take care. Bye. So you were listening to Shazi Ahmed. Uh, she was a specialist science teacher and private tutor working in London boroughs. Also a mom of four teenagers and active within the local community, teaching religious knowledge to school-age girls. You know, I mentioned earlier that the head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, the current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, uh, may Allah be his helper, he, um, in a recent address that was on 24th of September this month, this year, at an annual gathering, uh, that's the um, ladies' annual conference called Lajnai Tema, where he said, Islam has greatly emphasized the importance of educating girls and ladies so that their potential is unlocked and they become assets to their community. Furthermore, being educated will enable mothers to nurture and guide their children in a way that they develop into well-rounded and responsible citizens who contribute positively to their communities. So, um, speaking about the child marriage, obviously child marriage is also, you know, one of the important topics which is covered <coughs> when we are talking about girls, school-age girls. Um, so, it, although it has been highlighted previously, the term child marriage involves the formal or informal union of a child under 18 with either an adult or another child. Although there has been a consistent decrease in this detrimental practice over the last 10 years, child marriage continues to be prevalent. Approximately one out of every five girls worldwide are married before reaching adulthood. I think our next guests are here. They have joined us. Uh, uh, these are uh, two um, ladies, Anais Lawrence and Athena Zawara. Uh, let me just introduce them to you. Athena Zawara is an assistant professor at the University of Bern, Switzerland. She works in the field of neuroscience in parallel to research and teaching. She's active in promoting inclusivity and diversity in science. And our other guest with her is, uh, uh, of course, Anis Lawrence. Uh, she's a cognitive neuroscientist at the CNRS Femto ST of Besken. Besancon and IPNP of Paris. Her research combines behavioral experiments and electro 
physiological recordings to study the brain mechanisms involved in inter-individual communication. She's also involved in promoting equity and diversity in STEM. So we welcome both of them. Thank you for joining us this afternoon on Drive, Drive Time Show. Hi. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, so um, I would like to ask uh, first question. You both co-authored a research paper on gender bias in ac academia, a lifetime problem that needs solutions. So what inspired you to write a paper on this topic? Uh, well, um, it was an accumulation of evidence. Uh, and the last job was a, a conference at the end of 2019. Mm -hmm. um, we went there uh, with our former lab from UC Berkeley in California. And during this conference, we met many of our colleagues from around the world. And we had many discussions with um, our women peers. Mm -hmm. And we, re we realized how much of a struggle uh, it is to find a good balance between private and professional life. And, um, and at the same time, in this very same conference, uh, they organized some seminars about women in neuroscience. And we went there and we realized that the room was filled with women only and the panel was composed of successful women only. Mm -hmm. So we felt that uh, this discrepancy between the seminar and the stories led to this um, survivorship bias and made us feel like we were the issue. Right, okay, that's great. And I would like to add that uh, back in Berkeley, we discussed this experience among lab members and we decided that things needed to be done. So we organized a lab meeting to organize and discuss the different aspects of gender bias. And uh, we actually didn't expect uh, such a big interest. Everyone brought their own experience of bias. Mm -hmm. And then it was easy to see that feeling misunderstood by academia was not an isolated event. So this is when we decided to team up and write this article. And we divided the work in teams according to their interest, and then we coordinated all the teams. And the last uh, senior co-authors, Bob Knight and Nina Dronkers, mm -hmm. helped us to reach more scientists who were interested in participating. So in your findings, what are the key barriers that girls face in accessing a quality education? So gender bias is extremely perverse, pervasive and deeply rooted in many societies. And the general issue has direct repercussions on the access to quality education for girls. Gender stereotyping occurs with interactions with parents, educators, peers, and also in the media. And all these factors have negative effects on the girls' interest and confidence in their performance in the STEM subjects and also can reduce interest in research careers in STEM later in life. And uh, of course, once the girls are included in high in uh, quality education, then the bias is evolved and concern also different aspects of academic life, which uh, lead to the leaky pipeline phenomenon. So we know that even in the last uh, year beyond high school, women are one and a half times more likely than men to leave the STEM higher education pipeline. And in more advanced university degrees and career stages, the women to men ratio progressively decreases even more. And uh, in most countries, uh, the point where this starts is the start of the university years. And uh, there we usually still have equal numbers of men and women that are enrolled. But then the gap widens by the end of the postdoctoral career stage. And uh, I can add to that if you want. I can give you some examples like throughout um, an academic career, uh, women are less frequently represented as first and last authors uh, on publication. And their work are also less cited. 
Um, usually women have less uh, foundings and they also receive fewer invitations to speak at conference. Mm-hmm. Um, and women also are less likely than men to receive tenure despite equivalent job performance, which is something really important to say. And also, I think there is something that we cannot ignore, which is the appalling issues of sexual harassment in academia mm-hmm. and the disproportionate burden of childcare. Right, okay. So, following on from the first question, how do these barriers intersect with broader issues related to? gender equality and girls' rights? So these are all interwined. And in fact, discussions about bias are incomplete without considering the unique struggles that are faced by women who hold additional identities mm-hmm. and uh, may be subject to discrimination. And these barriers that are faced by women are amplified for those who are also members of additional underrepresented groups, for example, based to race or ethnicity, religion, socioeconomic status, and so on. And for instance, studies have shown that women of color are less likely to receive tenure despite equal productivity. And uh, in fact, gender bias in academia manifests within these biases that are known to exist in society. And uh, it's hard to change one without the other because we always need to increase awareness. Right, okay, so how might gender bias reflected in teaching evaluations impact the classroom dynamics and learning experiences for students? And how might it affect girls in the future? Uh, Well, that's a good question. And I think it it will echo with what your previous guest mentioned. I think already in the classroom, we can observe bias against girls. For instance, in many cultures, there is this long-lasting stereotype that boys are better at math than girls which impacts girls' uh, performance on math tests, despite no intrinsic, uh, no biological difference. And um, there is also this internal representation of a scientist. Uh, Studies have shown that if you ask kids to draw a scientist, there is a high chance that they will draw a white old man with glasses, uh, because that's the common representation. And if you don't see yourself represented as a scientist, well, it's easy to think that you don't belong in that community, which is, of course, not true. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that the gender stereotype, uh, stereotyping through interactions with parents, educators, peers, and the media has a negative impact on girls' interest and confidence in their performance in STEM subjects especially. And this can potentially reduce their interest in research careers later on. So what factors do you think contribute to the observed favoritism towards men in academic hiring and promotions? So there are a lot of uh, different factors. Um, One thing important to note is that gender bias in recruitment can occur even before the applications are evaluated. And uh, one of the reasons for that is that men are overrepresented among senior faculty. So evaluation committees and interview panels have a very skewed uh, gender composition. And uh, for example, some studies that were done in uh, Italian and Spanish uh, academic institutions show that when the promotion committee is composed exclusively of men, then women are less likely to get promoted. And with each additional woman that is added in a seven-member promotion committee, the number of women that are promoted to full professor increases by 14%. So that shows that it's very important to have uh, gender-balanced evaluation committees. And uh, then biases also continue in the evaluation of the CV. So when faculty think that uh, the applicant is a man, they tend to evaluate the profile more favorably and are more likely to hire the applicant 
done when they believe that the applicant is a woman. So these are uh, blinded studies that were done to show this effect. And then another big factor are the recommendation letters, which are very important when evaluating the profiling of an applicant. And the wording in these letters is very different between genders. So the adjectives that are used to describe the man's work tend to be stronger than those for a woman. And letters that are supporting women are typically shorter and include also fewer standout adjectives. For example, you say that the candidate <coughs> is superb or brilliant. And uh, we also have a lot of other factors, for example, that men tend to have larger networks who are helping with the job search or may display more confidence and uh, present the work with more confidence. What about, uh, you know, the, the the bias can be the other other way around as well. I mean, people some, sometimes they would like to have uh, girls or ladies in their, in the jobs. But the, the factors, you know, some of the factors, um, the employees they consider is may, maybe that, you know, once we hire, uh, hire she's going to go on maternity leave, she's uh, going to be off, she's, she'll have responsibilities of the children. So how, how do you, you know, um, respond to that? Yeah, that's a, that's a big that's a big issue actually. That's also something that uh, we are trying to to overcome with uh, you know different um, initiatives. For instance, now when it comes to uh, parental leaves, we try to uh, make uh, make it balanced you know uh, between genders to also make sure that uh, the father also have time to bond with the kids and also to take some time off uh, to um, you know to help the mother to raise also the, the children and then so that the you know the gap that actually is triggered by this uh, maternal uh, leave will be uh, probably mitigated so that will be something but it's true that for recruitment it's still it's still an issue because of the fact that the, i think the gender roles in the society are still really well um, too much kind of set in in stone and as long as the role are not more diversified and you know more shared throughout gender then we will still face this issue of you know women having to do all the, the most of the burden of the child care uh, which yeah impacts women's career for sure and tenure position especially right just one last question before you go um looking ahead what research areas or policy interventions do you believe are crucial for de dismantling gender bias in education and ensuring the fulfillment of girls' rights? Well, um, I think many things. So for, uh, I think to overcome this lack of accessibility, um, it's what I was saying about the role of gender uh, in the society. I think it needs to be redefined and re redistributed. And uh, it starts by increasing awareness, for instance, by making radio shows are this one. Uh, and concrete actions are needed to mitigate this uh, effect of gender bias at different levels. For instance, in our paper, we talk about uh, individual, institutional, and social levels. And uh, we do think that the changes need to come from the top. Universities, journals, funding agencies need to demonstrate a united front against discrimination by, for instance, uh, adopting a strong and anti-biased uh, policies. And transparency can help, you know, a lot about all these things to have a more fair and inclusive recruitment procedures, and ambiguous salary scales, and strong anti-harassment stances. And um, that's the case, for instance. Uh, I mean, for instance, at UC Berkeley, where we were, if no woman candidates apply to a job offer, then it's, it is required that the position is reanimated more broadly. And it's something uh, important to to state is this allows to diversify and increase the pool of applicants. But, and it go beyond the usual network to seek other brilliant minds 
uh, we're having less visibility is not decreasing um, the quality. It's more it's uh, diversifying it. Thank you very much. That was brilliant. I think uh, uh, very, very uh, nice answers to our uh, queries. Um, thank you very much, uh, Anais Lawrence and Athena Zawara. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank Thanks you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a nice evening. Bye. Thank you. So that was, uh, we had uh, Athena Zawara, she's an assistant professor at the University of Bern, Switzerland, and she was talking to us about the girls' rights along with uh, Anais Lawrence. Uh, um, they were both, uh, of course, uh, they, they, they are at a very high um, status in their jobs and uh, relating to the gender bias there, they are working very actively and uh, um, hope that they they achieve what they plan to, and they um, they are uh, obviously they are insp inspiring for other people, so so that they they can come into this field and they can help people out. Very much right. Uh, before going, uh, before you know, we started the uh, interview today with our guest. You were discussing the child marriage. You know, I previously uh, we highlighted the topic of child marriage, the term. Child marriage involves the formal or informal union of a child under 18 with either an adult or another child. Although uh, there has been a con constant decrease in this determinative practice over the last 10 years, child marriage continues to be you know, prevalent. Approximately one out of every five girls worldwide are married before reaching the adulthood. And child marriage, you know, deprives girls of their childhood and, uh, you know, jeopardizes their welfare. When girls marry before the age of 18, they face an increased risk of encountering domestic violence and are less likely to stay enrolled in school. Their, you know, economic and health prospects are less favorable compared to those of unmarried girls and these disadvantages are often inherited by their own children putting additional stress on a country ability, country's ability to deliver high-quality healthcare and education service. Nearly half of child brides live in South Asia, 290 million, with the next largest share in sub-Saharan Africa being 127 million. And last thing, you know, child brides face significant health risks, including a higher you know, likelihood of complications during pregnancy and childbirth due to their young age and physical you know, maturity. And in addition to the physical health risk, child brides often experience emotional and, you know, psychological distress due to early responsibilities and challenges associated with marriage and motherhood. So we are discussing this topic. We'll be, dis carrying on, we'll be discussing it after we have our guest, which is with us. Uh, and I would like to ask Dr. Talibaja if you can just take him. On. Um, yeah, the, the, our next guest, uh, who is on telephone, um, uh, who will be speaking uh, with us is Claire Reindrop. She is Chief Executive of Young Women's Trust, and uh, she's with us. Welcome uh, to the Drive Time Show on Voice of Islam Radio, Claire. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you very much for joining us uh, this afternoon. So my first question to you is tell us a little bit about yourself and how, how Young Women's Trust came about. Sure. Well, we are um, a national charity. We cover, we carry England and Wales, and we champion young women aged 18 to 30, uh, particularly young women who are living on low pay or no pay. 
Um, and our purpose is to create a more equal world of work for young women and raise their incomes. We have like an interesting history because we started uh, in the 1850s. Um, we were called the Young Women's Christian Association at that time and supporting young women who were migrating to uh, English cities in the Industrial Revolution. Um, we supported them um, and, and carried on through uh, the First and Second World War. Um, and, and up until today, uh, we obviously have changed what we do in that time. We're now a secular organisation, but um, we're here to champion all young women to help them uh, succeed in the workplace and get fair pay. That's great. So you recently <laughs> released your uh, Costing Our Futures annual report. What are the key findings from the report and how do they highlight the impact of the cost of living crisis on young women? Yes, well, the, 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 the depressing findings from our survey really was that we know lots of people are really struggling in the cost of living crisis right now. But the truth is that it's really hitting young women very hard and, and widening the gap between the financial experiences of young men and young women. So in our survey, 46% uh, of young women told us their finances had got worse in the last 12 months um, compared to a third of young men. Young women are more likely to be struggling to make their cash last till the end of the month and more likely than young men to be struggling to um, pay debt uh, and to afford essential supplies. And, and this this picture of this gap between young men and young women's financial circumstances comes about because young women take home one-fifth less income than young men per year. Uh, that's about £5,000 less on average in the UK. That's a huge amount of money in a cost-of-living crisis. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's, uh, you know, one, one reason, particularly in the, in the women or girls. So could you elaborate on the... You know, some other reasons behind the worsening financial situation for young women, especially in the, um, especially the significant increase over the past year. And uh, has it suddenly worsened or is it something that's ongoing? Well, the first thing, just to answer that, the first question about what, what, why is that happening? We know that um, young women are facing three challenges, really. Firstly, they're getting funneled into low-paid industries like care, hospitality, retail. Um, I listened earlier on to one of your callers, Shazia, who's uh, had a background in engineering and we've been talking about academia, I know, in the, in the course this afternoon. But young women are much more likely to go into low-paid work and then to struggle to progress within it or to move into high-paid industries. They're also really getting, facing lots of sexism, just as we've heard from Latina and Anise about sexism in academia. We know that young women are struggling to progress. And also because of a lack of flexible working and affordable childcare, young women are not working as many hours as they would like, so they're more likely to be working part-time, and that's obviously affecting their income. Um, and to answer your question about is it getting worse, absolutely, you, you can imagine if you're taking home that £5,000 less per year, as uh, inflation has increased, as the cost of living is rising, it, it's young women are falling further and further behind their male peers, as levels of debt are rising. And we're hearing terrible stories really about young women being stuck in abusive relationships they can't afford to leave, or stuck in jobs that are not right for them, they can't risk uh, leaving one job to find something that's better, uh, they can't afford sometimes to train um, or to stay in education. So it has big Big, you know, big impact on them right now, but also on their futures. 
Um, so um, the Young Women's Trust, um, you know, obviously is calling for government measures to address the cost of living crisis being faced by young women. Could you explain the proposed measures? Sure. Well, right now we want government to act to support many people struggling uh, in, in the cost of living crisis and, and particularly young, young people. We think the national living wage should be available to everyone over the age of 18. Um, your listeners might not know that if you're 20, 19, you can't get uh, the same rate of pay as older workers. And we think that's a nonsense because it's not cheaper to live when you're younger than when you're older. We also think that the rate of universal credit is too low for people to live on and there should be uh, an essentials guarantee, really making sure that universal credit can actually cover what you need to survive. In a rich country like like the UK, people shouldn't be choosing between whether they can afford to heat their homes or to eat a meal. And we really want government to listen to young women in this cost of living crisis about what will make a difference to them. Um, and we know that there's actions as well here for employers. Um, good employers are, are championing young women, they're giving them fair pay, um, they're giving them flexible working. So really good employers are doing that and they're benefiting from incredibly talented young women staying in the workforce. Right. And, and one last question is, uh, what sort of action is your organisation taking to tackle the issue of inequality in the workplace? Mm. Well, first of all, if you're listening to this and you're a young woman aged 18 to 30 or you're um, a parent or you have nieces in, in this age range, do encourage them to get in contact with us. We offer free professional coaching to all young women to help them get ahead in their life, whatever that looks like for them. We can also help young women with their CVs. We heard earlier on today about sometimes how the sexism in, when people look at applications from, from women compared to men, we can help young women get a really excellent application together. We also are campaigning for changes in the workplace. So do, do look us up. We're at youngwomenstrust.org and you can download there if you're an employer. You can download our tips and guides about how to be a fair employer and champion young women. You can also donate and fundraise with us. You can campaign with us. You can, if you're a young woman, get support. Um, so uh, we'd love to, uh, we'd love to reach out to your audience and um, and really spread the, spread the word about young women's trust and about the nature of the challenges that young women face. That I think we can all work together to tackle. Okay, that's great, uh, Claire. Thank you very much for joining us uh, this afternoon, and I hope that everybody um, have listened to your message, and uh, everybody will be keen to you know do something about it and joining you. Thank you very much, uh, and uh, have a nice evening. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So that's uh, Claire Reindorp. She's the chief executive for Young Women's Trust, and she was telling us about. You know, what they are doing, their organization is doing regarding getting the, the rights for the girls and, and the better situation as regards employment as well. So we were talking, uh, you know, of course, this is a, an important topic, gender bias, the girls, how the situation on this day, which is 11th of October, which is celebrated as a, a, a day for the, the girl child. And uh, so how the situation can be better. And the Islamic teaching, as you heard earlier, as well as the, 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 there's a mention and the practical example of the Holy Prophet of Islam that he was very keen to give the rights to, to, to the women. So gender bias in the workplace, particularly in this particular 
you know, it has always been a problem, but but nowadays, again, you know, when there is a financial crisis, you see that unequal treatment, discrimination based on individual gender, uh, leads to you know disadvantage for the for the women, for the girls who are trying to find a job, and uh, with a difficult financial situation, and that leads to um, crisis for them. Occupational segregation and gender bias can lead to the concentration of men and women in different industries and occupations, uh, um, as uh, you heard our guest uh, as well, that, uh, you know, um, she's, she's an engineer, but she's uh, working as a science teacher. Um, because this is a particular, there, there are certain fields which are associated with the women, they can do better in that, like uh, even even in people go into medical field. And even within the medical field, you see that there are certain departments which would be preferred by the women, whereas the others are um, associated with the, uh, with the men. Uh, particularly in the developing countries, I, I remember that, uh, you know, in, in Pakistan, we used to have very few gynecologists, the male gynecologists, whereas the, um, mostly it was the female gynecologists because people would not go to a male male gynecologist. So that is the, the culture, that's the tradition. Uh, but here we, we don't have that problem. Mainly we, we, we do have male gynecologists and the people are... Okay to go to to those, so this is uh, so this is what we are discussing today. So where 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 do we find gender stereotypes can even influence like hiring decisions, promoting opportunities and job assignments? For example, young women may be stereotyped as less assertive, less suited for leadership roles, may not be hired, although they may have the right qualifications. Um, and despite their qualifications, women can find it difficult to advance to higher positions within the organizations. That's what the statistics tell us. Uh, although there has been improved um, improvement uh, in these um, in the recent years, in some industries, women are underrepresented in leadership and decision-making roles, which can perpetuate gender bias and limit opportunities for women. Our current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, he regularly states the importance of gender equality and empowerment of women. He said that Islamic teachings are crystal clear that women are not inferior to men in any way whatsoever. Thus, where the Holy Quran mentions believing men, it also mentions believing women. This is true equality. When we compare and contrast the status bestowed upon women in Islam compared to other religions, it is like night and day. So this is, uh, you know, this is an important topic, and I, I think that we have covered, we have covered quite in quite quite details. What are the, you know, what is being done currently, particularly in the UK, and in the countries like UK, we are fortunate to have educational access, um, but sadly, this privilege is not universally shared. Um, you know, in different countries, even even in these developed countries, we have noted that many times the the young girls they have to leave their education early due to various reasons although you know they but um, gradually the economic crisis is leading to people not going into higher education because they can't afford it uh, university you know they, they, they there was a time when they there was enough grant available people did not have that much burden but now they are scared to get into 
getting into loans and getting into because it's quite expensive. Um, similarly, as when we, we talk about the developing countries uh, where even educational facilities are not available everywhere. If you go into the villages, you hardly find any schools for girls. Particularly if we talk about uh, Afghanistan, the nature, in Afghanistan, girls are being denied educational opportunities with some authorities citing adherence to Islamic law as the rationale, whereas it's nothing to do with Islam. As I mentioned earlier, Islam gives equal opportunity, equal rights for the for the women. That as long, you know, the, the, they have the same rights as as men to to be educated to the highest level they can. It's important to note that Islam itself has a fifteen hundred year of history promoting education for both males and females. Again, you know, our uh, current head of the Muslim community, Hazrat Masroo Ahmed. Uh, may Allah be his helper. He said that no Ahmadi Muslim woman should ever consider herself inferior to any man or remain hidden in his shadow. So, um, so this is this. Uh, I think we have discussed in quite a quite a details of the on, on this topic of uh, on this girl's uh, rights uh, on on this day, 11th of October, which is marked as the International Day of the Girl Child, and uh, we all within our uh, uh, you know. Uh, sphere, we should promote these things and we should uh, see that wherever we can help the girls who want to be educated but they cannot afford because of the various reasons, it may be financial reasons, it may be the illiterate um, parents who are not um, uh, who are not keen for that for their daughters to be educated because they say uh, they are going to take care of the homes. They are, you know they they don't need these. Uh, and uh, I, I remember um, asking a question to Hazrat Khalifa al Masih the fourth, the fourth Caliph of the Ahmadi Muslim community, and I, I asked him particularly the question that you know that, that the girls they get into education. Sometimes they get into professions, and after a while they they leave the profession and they hence. A lot of time is wasted for 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 them they, because they get educated many years. They they go into it, but they then they get married and they go to, to they have to look after their priorities, their husbands, and they, they look after the children. Uh, and he responded that yes, of course they that is their uh, responsibility and that's the priority. Yet, you know, there can be circumstances where they are needed to work. For example, their crisis, their husband has uh, you know some some disability or something, and they can help. And then he also mentioned that the educated mothers are better mothers in the respect that they can educate their children much in a much better way. And they, as we saw the example of our first guest, that she's there and she knows what the problems that the, the, their teenage children are going through. And she can um, respond to them correctly and she can uh, educate them in a better way. So the the training of the children, the uh, because that's the main purpose of the mothers that they have to look after the house and and the children are the, the best and they are the in a best place where they can uh, they are basically educating the next generations so the future of any nation is in the hands of the mothers and if they are better educated they can be better, better mothers leading to a better future of that nation i think here we conclude uh, our program and uh, please join us uh, in the next hour where we'll be talking about the the social Care. Now we have reached Germany at last. <laughs> There's a question from Germany from a lady about a verse in the Quran, Surah Al-Baqarah, um, verse 
A lady from Germany? ہندوستانی <laughs> The translation is, and the divorced women shall wait concerning themselves for three courses, and it is not lawful for them that they conceal what Allah has created in their homes, if they believe in Allah and the last day. The person which do not appear, <laughs> in the case of Hamila, so that for the period of three courses, the period of three courses, yeah. And or the time which it takes for three courses to appear. That's the meaning. If they believe in Allah and the last day, and their husbands have the greater right to take them back during that period, provided they desire reconciliation, and they, the women, have rights similar to those of men over them in equity, but men have a degree of advantage above them. And Allah is mighty and wise. He's asking, um, what does it mean by and they have rights similar to those over them in equity? This is what I have been explaining before in many of my personal sessions. It's very important that wherever you read rights of men to be different from those of women, they are always in relation to their different constitutions. You know, the constitutions are built differently, and as such, they require different treatment by law. Because women bear children and men do not. So that is the reason there are differences between injunctions of the Quran when the different when the injunctions address men and when they address women. There are differences only because of this. Otherwise, the right of women is exactly the same as the right of men. In all of the things, they must be treated equally in their fundamental rights. This is the meaning. Correct? That is, the equality is in their being nafs, or nafus, all of them. And this equality is mentioned in another verse of the Qur'an, which says, لَا يُكَلِّفُ اللَّهُ نَفْسًا إِلَّا غُصَاهَا لَهَا مَا كَسَبَتْ وَعَلَيْهَا مَا كَسَبَتْ This is the overwhelming law of equality. And in this word nafs, women are as much included as men are. So, Laha Marta Sabbat, Walaha Marta Sabbat is the overbearing rule by which every nafs will be judged. And in this rule, there is no inequality at all. In the German translation, they translate it um, a bit different than equity. They say they have rights after tradition. And is there anything like this mentioned in the Arabic as well? 
that tradition? they only have rights after the traditions. No, no, no. Okay. okay. This uh, translation has to be corrected. Okay. I have come across many translations, many passages which I believe are not correctly translated, and that gives an opportunity to the non-Muslims to object. Whereas, of course, in the case of other translations into German, it happens much more often that a mistranslation gives the occasion for objection to others. In our translation, it is very little, very few instances, but still they are, and they have to be removed. This is why I instructed the Jamaat Germany that in new translation they should consult also my Urdu version, which will inshallah clarify all these things. Right? You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Welcome back after the news break. <clears throat> you are listening to Aniko Rahman and I'm joined by Dr. Tariq Bajwa here in London studio of Voice of Islam. In the first hour, we have discussed uh, girls' right and women's right in depth. We have taken the guests who have you know, discussed this topic in, and you know, mentioned different aspects and what's been happening and how we can make it a better future for them. In the second hour, we'll be discussing a very important topic, which is, um, you know, regarding social care. Increased investment is critical. We'll be discussing this topic in depth. You can, uh, you know, also call us on 0208-687-7878. To discuss this topic, we'll be having some guests today who will be discussing this topic in depth and giving us insight that what can be done. So discussing why a long overdue pay rise for our dedicated caregivers is not just fair but essential, as respect should be synonymous with their tireless work. Money, the lifeblood of change, is crucial, highlighting how increased funding can transform the sector and create jobs, boistering our econ- economy. Please tune in to discover why it is time to turn the page on neglect and pen a new chapter of compassion where memorable sentences become potent actions. Care home bosses are demanding the next government funds a 44% pay rise for frontline staff to stabilize. According to Skills for Care, the social care sector generated £51.5 billion for the economy in England in 2021-22. And, and, and there is a quotation from the Holy Quran. It says that, And worship Allah and associate not with him and show kindness to parents and to kindred and orphans and the needy and to the neighbor that is a kinsman and the neighbor that is a stranger and the companion by your side and the wayfarer and those whom your right hands possess. Surely Allah loves not the proud and boastful. So that's from chapter 4, verse 37. Then again, Allah says that thy Lord has commanded, worship none but him and show kindness to parents. If one of them or both of them attain old age with thee, 
Never say unto them any word expressive of disgust, nor reproach them, but address them with excellent speech. So, just looking at the state of care homes in 2021-22, 818,000 people received publicly funded long-term social care, primarily in care nursing homes or in their own homes. In addition, there were 224,000 episodes of short-term care provided. Now, looking at the quality and standards, the state of care homes varies widely with some maintaining high quality standards in terms of medical care, hygiene, and overall um, resident well-being, while others struggle to meet basic requirements. So we'll continue to talk about that. First, I think we have um, our first guest. Yes, we have uh, Liz John with us, Policy Director at National Care Forum. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. And thank you very much for joining us today here in Voice of Islam Radio. To be here, thank you for the welcome. Um, thank you, Liz. Uh, starting off uh, with the first question, you know, advocacy and policy play a crucial role in shaping social care. What are some key policy recommendations or, you know, advocacy efforts that the National Care Forum is currently engaged in to promote increased investment and, you know, enhanced care and st- standards? And how can individuals in our audience can get involved in these efforts? Well, thank you very much for inviting me to talk about this. Um, great to talk to your listeners. Um, I think it's just helpful to provide a little bit of context uh, both to what we do at the National Care Forum, but also just to help your listeners understand um, perhaps a bit more about the diversity of, of social care um, in England. I can talk more about mm-hmm. England than I can about the devolved nations. So you, you mentioned in the intro about older people and care homes, and of course, um, you know, there are, there's quite a lot of social care that's devoted to looking after our elders, uh, be that in nursing or residential care, or be that um, home care where people get help at home in the community. But of course, actually, the types of service that are out there uh, and the, the complexity of need and the range of need is actually much broader than older people. Older people are a key element of that. Uh, but there's a lot of need amongst the, the working age population, um, people who have a range of disabilities, they might have a learning disability or mental health problems, um, or, or they may need some specific types of, of care and support. So those numbers you quoted, um, uh, over 800,000 people are getting long-term care and uh, uh, another 250-odd thousand getting short-term care really cover quite a diverse range of care and support and so when your listeners are thinking about what does social care really mean for many people social care is the glue that kind of holds their their lives together it's it's the care and support that helps them to keep living the best life that they can uh, remain involved in their communities if they're able to make sure they they stay connected with the people that really matter um, and make sure they've got the opportunities to do the things that they would find very fulfilling whether that's um, making sure their faith is honored or making sure the things that they like to spend their time doing um, can happen or if they're younger people and they would like to have the opportunity to volunteer or, or get a job 
So when we um, when we talk about kind of advocacy and um, banging the drum for social care, it's really important that your listeners understand it's lots of different types of people, and they will probably know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody mm-hmm. who is getting some sort of care and support or possibly working um, in social care. So some of the things that we think are really important and that we're going to be putting into our uh, our social care manifesto must-haves for talking to um, all political parties as we gear up for whenever the general election happens um, is that we really need to have a different arrangement for helping us as care providers to pay our staff better. Our staff do an amazing job. Um, and they are really highly skilled. There is a, a kind of misconception that care work is is low skill, and that is just not true. If you're thinking about people with complex set of uh, learning disabilities or older people with complex dementia, you know those skills that you need alongside your own values. You know, um, it takes a special person to be a really good care and support worker, and we need to be able to pay them better. But as you know, as your listeners will know, um, social care that's paid for by the state is is paid for by local authorities. And local authorities have got a lot of financial pressures, haven't they? I mean, we saw that Birmingham effectively declared itself bankrupt as, uh, as a local authority the other week. And other local authorities are up against it. So, so something isn't working in the way that, that the money that people are paying in their taxes is getting through back to local areas to help pay a really um, an honest kind of full rate for the care and support that people need. And to be able to pay our care and support workers better, our members uh, are very clear that, that they need to be paid the proper cost it, that it, it takes to employ them on a good wage. And it's not just about wages. It's also about the wider package of benefits. So, you know, things that will be important to your listeners will be what the sick pay policies are, what maternity and paternity pay policies are, what pensions are looking like. So we need to look at it in the round for how we make uh, the reward that we give to our workers better uh, and, and how we can then um, entice more people to come and work in what is a great sector. And just thinking about your, uh, many of the communities that might be listening, I mm-hmm. mean, the sector does struggle with the diversity of its, its workforce. Um, we've got a high proportion of women working in social care, usually uh, women in kind of middle age and a bit later. We struggle to get younger people to come and work for us. We struggle to get men to come and work for us. Uh, And often we struggle to find folks from um, more diverse communities to support their elders in in the paid care role, Um, just because that that seems to be how it is at the moment. And I think if we were able to offer a really great deal to care workers, it would be more attractive. You know, if we could pay better than the Amazon warehouse or retail or hospitality, Mm. Uh, and we could make people feel invested in and, you know, help them with their career development and their training, that would be fantastic. You're very much right indeed. I think that should happen. Uh, moving on to our first uh, second question, can you please provide an overview of the current state of social care in our nation? Well, um, there is a lot of social care and a lot of it is good. If you look at... Um, 
what the Care Quality Commission say. They're the people that that do the inspection and regulation of registered care. Um, the vast majority of the services they look at, they rate as being good. Uh, there are some that are are less good, you know, requires improvement, and there are some that are outstanding. I think from our point of view, so mm-hmm. my all the members that I represent are, are not-for-profit providers. And the thing that means is that um, although uh, they they need to make a surplus, they need to cover their operating costs and then have some left, the thing that they can do with that money is reinvest it into the services they provide. So they can try and pay better. They can think about improving the the quality of the environment, you know, so thinking about, um, I don't know, rebuilding, um, creating new settings, new housing with care or new care homes, thinking about investing in digital technology because that's really important, actually. You know, as, as, our, as our population ages, you know, if you think about yourself in... Well, you're probably only very young. Let me think about myself in 30 years' time. In 30 years' time, I shall be 84. I'm hoping that there will be, um, we'll have had the advances in technology that we've already had over the last 20 years. And I'm hoping that if I need some care and support, I'll be able to rely on a combination of technology and people, Mm -hmm. um, either to help me stay safely at home, you know, to manage things around the house, my internet of things, but also making sure that I'm not just abandoned with technology and I do actually have uh, connectivity and um, people around me. So lots of our members have been investing in digital um, technology, thinking about how to make the best of that for people um, and thinking about how that can really free up the time of the workforce we have um, to, to spend more time with people Hmm. so I think there's there are kind of some critical things that really matter obviously one of the big challenges coming our way and we haven't cracked the answer to this yet is um, how do we help the social care sector uh, respond to the climate emergency you know what do we do to help improve Hmm. environmental sustainability improve the energy efficiency of of the um, of the buildings that we've got how do we think about Uh, getting carbon neutral how do we make sure that we future proof because the the climate emergency is also affecting people's health particularly older and vulnerable people they're very susceptible to the impacts of climate change be that um, you know excess heat excess flooding you know all that kind of thing so there's um there's definitely things that we uh we can do Uh, i think the thing that we particularly work together with our members though is is understanding from each other how they can uh, improve the quality of the care. So we have lots of, um, well, now it's online, obviously, with the, the world of uh, technology moving so quickly. We have lots of online forum and sessions where, where members can talk about the great stuff that, that they're doing and other members can learn. So, for example, we've set up a dementia network so that people can really understand what how you deliver really great training, how you need to think about how you design your environment, how you design your model of care. You know, um, there's a thing called the household model, which is uh, really effective that our members like Belong and WCS Care use, where people live in smaller households together, um, but still in a, you know, still in a care setting. 
but it kind of shifts the dynamic and you, you can offer a very different experience of living in a smaller household supported by staff who are not necessarily just seen as a, as a they're not seen as a care worker who's got a specific role, but they are the, the person that really supports lots of different aspects of life in that household. So there's lots of exciting yeah. things, lots going on. <clears throat> One of the things you've mentioned, the significant challenges, right? So what are the opportunities you see in this sector today, particularly in light of COVID-19 pandemic? Well, um, let's think about the COVID pandemic for a minute. I mean, Mm. that was a very challenging time, wasn't it? And um, my heart goes out to the people that are listening who lost loved ones during that time. It was pretty challenging for a lot of people. Um, and our amazing workforce kind of hung on in there, tried their very best, despite the fact that, um, well, we think that social care wasn't really understood and was was uh, ignored, really. Hmm. I mean, obviously, we've got the COVID inquiry going on. Um, so there's uh, we've shared information with the inquiry uh, and we can't kind of talk about that in depth. But one of the key emerging themes was that if <clears throat> if across the system, be that locally or nationally across government, there'd been a better understanding just of the diversity and different types of social care um, and actually a better understanding of those people who provide uh, unpaid care, you know, family members um, and friends, then the response to the pandemic would have been a lot better. Mm. So, so actually building an understanding of what social care is, what it does, how it works and just how varied it is Uh, And how um, varied people's needs are. I mean, that would have been a starting point. Um, One of the things that COVID has done has accelerated the adoption of technology. Uh, So Mm. if you think about life in kind of 2019, the idea of doing lots of things on Teams or Zoom or that kind of thing um, wasn't really there. And I guess the other thing it taught us, um, well, there were lots of things it taught us, but um, I mean, it, it highlighted the sort of fragility of the sector. So uh, there, there has been an underinvestment in social care, you know, for the last 10 years um, in terms of government, possibly longer. Uh, but uh, but COVID really shone a light on that. And, and when lots of resource was thrown at supporting the NHS, um, because of the anxiety about the demands that might be placed on that, there was less thought given to how do we support this sector that is, um, uh, you know, looking after nearly a million people um, and, uh, you know, potentially would be very impacted by some of the policy decisions that were made. So I think for me, uh, COVID has shone a light on some of the difficulties that were there before, but we have a real opportunity to, to do things differently. And I think um, it, it's quite difficult for politicians, actually, to talk about social care, perhaps because they don't always understand it, but also mm. because they worry that it might be turned into a toxic election issue. And one of the things that would be great, actually, if, if your listeners are, are up for it, mm. um, is to be asking um, the politicians and the decision makers uh, local to them, um, you know, how they plan to support social care going forward, how we're going to respond to our ageing population, which is a fantastic thing. Mm. You know, if we're all looking at a 100-year life, 
how brilliant is that? But we need to make sure that's 100 years where the majority of it is lived well um, and that we can, you know, really get ahead of people's potential crises and needs. That prevention, that early intervention, you know, stopping people becoming lonely and isolated, thinking about helping people to adapt their homes. So as they get a bit frailer, they've got a bit of support. There's so many things that together as a country we could do, Hmm. but we need our politicians, whether it's our local councillors or our MPs or our candidates for election, we need them to understand that social care really matters. It matters Mm. to the people who are getting it, but it also matters to to your family. You know, my mum and dad have um, help at home now after my dad broke his hip at Christmas, and they were very Mm. independent before that. But but now they've got a fantastic um, team of people supporting them at home, which which really makes the difference. I think so. Everybody listening will know somebody who knows somebody who's getting some support from care in uh, the social care sector, or mm. potentially who works in it, or volunteers in it. So keeping it up there, keeping it an issue. When you think NHS, also think social care. You know these things are critically interlinked. And if we can join those systems up better and we see social care as the thing that will uh, help people stay well for longer um, and which will then, if people do have a crisis, will help them regain their independence quicker, then I think that um, that would be uh, incredibly beneficial both for our older people and for those vulnerable people of working age who've got a whole range of really complex needs but do really want to be able to, you know, live life well, make a contribution to their community, stay connected with the people that matter, whether that's their friends, whether that's their faith, whether that's their family, whether that's their real interests. You know, there is a lot here that can really, uh, we could really transform our Mm. communities if we could do it well. Very much right. You know, as an advocate for social care, how do you envision the role of increased investment in, in addressing the issues facing, you know, care homes, caregivers and vulnerable population and what specific areas or, you know, initiatives do you believe uh, should receive more funding and attention? Well, increased investment can come from several places, really. Um, The thing is, you have to decide how you want it to work. So in the not-for-profit sector, um, it's quite hard to uh, get a um, significant amount of, of uh, capital investment mm-hmm. um, because, you know, you're not offering a return to shareholders. So thinking about more creative ways of accessing um, funding for social value and for investing in the not-for-profit sector and services uh, is something that we, we really need to explore. Of course, if, you, if you're not having to deliver um, a profit for shareholders, then you can um, reinvest the surplus that you make into improving the quality of, of care. And uh, I guess back to my first point, really, um, the issues that face care providers and people who work in care and um, and unpaid caregivers is that uh, they, we need um, some some better reward and better recognition. So we were talking to Carers UK the other Mm. day and they think there's over 10 million unpaid carers uh, in the country and actually some of the things they need are are being recognised, flexibility around if they're um, trying to fit their work in, 
uh, alongside their caring duties, understanding that sometimes people might have to take a step back from work to perform their caring duties and then mm. potentially, you know, move back into the workforce. And as I said, it, you know, pay and recognition, I think, would transform uh, the public perception of working in care. Uh, and it would really boost our ability to uh, to deal with some of that unmet need that is out there. Uh, so, you know, there is a lot that we can do together, mm. but we do need the support of the public, the taxpayer and the politician to say this is an important priority. You know, we had uh, there was an attempt to increase national insurance to create a ring fence funding pot for social care. That that went away again. Um, I don't really, under, I don't. I'm not really in a position to say how do we, uh, how does the coverage, government leverage more investment? It, it might need to think about making slightly different decisions about where money gets spent. Mm. But I can guarantee you, you know, we had um, we had a report from um, an organisation uh, called the Future Social Care Coalition the other day. And they found that for every pound that was invested into social care, there was a £1.75 benefit across the local community because of the economic benefit mm. that social care provides. Social care is everywhere. You know, if you want to level up, social care happens in every community. Mm. People, people who are paid locally spend locally. You know, there are local supply chains. It, it, it may, it, it, social care could make a well, does make a massive economic contribution. And if we see it in that light, rather than seeing it as a drain on the public purse, then I think we could uh, really start to shift uh, attitudes and investment. Very much right. Uh, one other thing, I think is last thing I would like to ask, uh, you probably have touched this. Could you share some examples of successful models or you know the practices from the National Care Forum or other organizations that have uh, you know demonstrated positive outcome in terms of improving social care standards and you know caregiver support absolutely so um lots of our members um were pretty early on in the adoption of uh, digital uh, technology um and what we have seen from that is that you know if you've got a digital um care record system for example or you've got digital medication systems, you've got uh, a much better picture uh, and kind of bigger data for trends and analysis to understand uh, what's happening with the people that you're supporting. Uh, so, for example, one of our members who had both of those things in the early days of COVID was able to see that um, spot trends in people being unwell a, a long time before any testing was made available to the sector. Uh, if you've got technology, you can make sure, for example, that uh, you can have systems, sensor technology uh, in uh, in your care settings. So you perhaps um, can m make sure that you're not disturbing people at night when they're sleeping, but you can understand if they need help. Things like acoustic monitoring um, or other sensor technology. Uh, one of our members has been doing a huge amount of work. Um, they support people with learning disabilities and they've been doing a huge amount of work to give people technology designed to really support their independence, um, help them to uh, get support when they need it, but also um, uh, to, to not have it kind of on a, um, a very structured, non-responsive way. 
um, belong and um, WCS Care are really innovative in those household models. And lots of our members kind of offer a portfolio of services. So Mm -hmm. they'll offer um, community support, they'll offer home care and they'll offer accommodation services, whether it's housing or, or care homes, to really kind of support people across their ageing um, and, and be with people to build confidence that as they age, they can still carry on doing the things they love. They just um, might need a bit of, a bit of help. And um, Community Integrated Care were with us um, when we were at the Labour Conference um, on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of, their, um, uh, one of the people that they support um, has taken on a role as a sports inclusion assistant. And he was amazing. He'd been supported with volunteering um, and then he'd been supported into paid work to do the things that he loved in terms of helping other people um, with care and support needs, um, be it learning disability or autism, helping other people to get active and healthy. So just fantastic examples of helping people to live their best life, seeing the potential in everybody uh, and, and really helping to improve and respond to, together with people we support, improve what we can offer because we listen to them and we try and shape what we do around them. You know, not, it's not always perfect and there's always more to learn. Um, but I think, you know, the great thing about our members across the not-for-profit sector is that they, they're open to learning, they want to share, they want to hear other people's great ideas. And most importantly, they want to hear from the people that they support and figure out what, should, what else can they do? What else can they do to make that person's day a great day? You're very much right, right, Liz Jones, and uh, <clears throat> thank you very much for giving, I think, a lot of time today and uh, discussing this topic in depth, and we hope that our listeners have benefited and that uh, they do ponder over things, and especially, I think, to change things, they should go to their you know, local uh, council, council and discuss, uh, local MP, to discuss this yeah. matter. I think it's very important and crucial, especially in this uh, you know, day and age, and things are changing, and I think we have to lift up everything thank you very much for joining us today and uh, you know giving us interview uh, i hope our listeners enjoyed it i have a nice evening uh, <laughs> thank you so night. much thank, thank you, you good much. evening to all your listeners yeah, thank you for thank having you. me thank take you. care now take Bye-bye. Care. bye so you were listening to liz jones uh policy director at national care forum who discussed the you know, the topic of social care in depth and giving us insight that's what's been happening, what can be done and how we can, you know, we can reform uh, the, the how we can reform uh, the, the social care system. And I hope as we you have heard that there's a responsibility lies on everybody's shoulder and everybody has to pay and everybody has to contribute in this in this cause. And one of the effort we can do, we can at least go to our MP and discuss the matter, how would we can bring, uh, you know, a positive change uh, within uh, the, uh, the the society. So we were earlier uh, talking about the state of care homes, you know, statistics, what they're telling us. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, that in 2021, 22, 818,000 people, they received publicly funded long-term social care primarily in care care or nursing homes or in their own homes. In addition, there were uh, 224,000 episodes of short-term care provided. 
the state of care homes varies widely and with some maintaining high quality standards in terms of medical care, hygiene, and overall resident well-being, while others, they just struggle to meet basic requirements. Mm. As regards the aging infrastructure, many care homes, they operate in older buildings with outdated infrastructure, which can pose challenges in terms of safety and accessibility for the residents. Uh, as regards the compliance and inspection, the level of compliance with regulations and the frequency and thoroughness of inspections can significantly affect the quality of care homes. The state of care homes is also measured by the overall experience of the residents, including their level of comfort, social engagement, and access to the recreational activities. The Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he said that whoever is not merciful to others will not be treated mercifully. So that uh, that has been that uh, tradition has been taken from uh, Sahih al Bukhari, the uh, book of the authentic uh, traditions of hadith. And uh, obviously, uh, Islam encourages that we should to, to take care of our elders, particularly, you know, the, your parents. They you, you they have a right upon you. And uh, you know you cannot, you can never return their favors which they have done upon you. So one has to be take care of that. But as a society, we have to you know make arrangements so that if an individual cannot take care of their parents or they are in a situation where it is difficult to take care of them, then it is uh, uh, you know we 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 should all shoulder that responsibility. So thank you, Dr. Tariq Baj. One of the things you mentioned <coughs> about the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, where he said that whoever is not merciful to others will not be treated mercifully definitely means that, you know, when a person <coughs> doesn't show mercy to a fellow human being, indeed, you, we cannot expect mercy from God Almighty. God Almighty, you know, is merciful to those, you know, who you know, take care of people and he, you know, have uh, he's humble and down to earth. So, in this contrast, we need to understand this uh, this saying of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Now we're going to move to our next guest, uh, Aksa Asan, uh, who's nurse, NHS nurse, and I welcome her in the show. Assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you, and thank you very much for joining us today. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. Thank you very much for joining us today here in Voice of Islam Radio. Thank you for having me. Uh, to start off, uh, we've given your introduction, your uh, NHS nurse, and to start off, uh, you know, as yourself, as NHS nurse, you have been on the front lines of healthcare in our country. Could you share your experiences and insights into the challenges faced by healthcare professionals, and, uh, you know, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic and the impact on patient care? Um, yes, yeah, so I've been a nurse for almost um, five years now, and I work in the emergency department in my local hospital. And um, oh, it was a it was a whirlwind of challenges, to be honest. I don't mm -hmm. know where to start from. Um, at the start, as we all know, COVID, the pandemic hit us in the end of 2019, and just I think there was so much happening. The predominant concern for most of the staffing groups were obviously being infected with the virus themselves. You know, naturally, we were all worried. We were scared that we'd end up transmitting it, not just to our loved ones, but, you know, to everybody around us. So at that time, it was very challenging. And with the demand of this new pandemic, there were constant changes. There were new guidelines that were being implemented. There were new policies that were developed. And 
just trying to keep up with the pace and staying up to date with everything. It was just happening really quick. Mm. Um, in particular, sort of like, for example, we had like a no relatives policy. And obviously that really affected everybody, you know, having to tell them they're not able to be with their loved ones or with their families while they're sick in hospital. Um, that was very quite challenging. You know, we were getting people that were getting quite angry with us and just the general pressures of it all was getting too much for everybody. Alongside that, it was the high mortality rate, the amount of patients that were just coming in through the department. Um, it was almost something like, you know, when you just think this is something like from a movie scene and it's not, we, don't, we just didn't know what to expect. We didn't know when it was going to end. Mm. There was loads of changes that were happening around us. So I remember just before COVID hit, I was off for like a week or so from work. And I remember coming back and, you know, everybody was talking about, oh, there's a hot zone, there's a cold zone. It was like the COVID area only and the non-COVID. And I, I didn't know what was going on. It turned out we had took over like the children's side of the A&E area and we were now working and operating it as an adult area. Obviously, as you can imagine, um, you know, being in unfamiliar settings, not knowing where things are, not sort of knowing the layout of the area, where to get emergency equipment, the stress of that added on, everything else that was happening was just sort of like a, it was like a chaos, to be honest. Mm. Um, yeah, like it, we got to a point where with the whole COVID restrictions, with the full PPE we had to wear, so the personal protective clothing, like everybody knows, it was the full um, surgical gown, the big gowns we had to wear. We had to wear the knowledge of a spiritual mask with the visors and we had to stay in that for the 12 hours of our shift so just 45 minutes of that being in that hmm. was so draining you know it was summertime it was Ramzan people were fasting it was just so much going on to be honest and nobody knew when it was going to end we didn't know it was all it was the fear of the unknown as well you know how do we how do we cope in the long run is this going to be something that's going to be there with us forever and the demand was increasing. It was both mentally and physically draining for all of us. The emotions at the time for everybody with so much going on, we almost felt guilty like we wasn't doing enough mm. to be able to provide that high quality care, you know. And of course, on top of that, staff were going off in our own department on the wards. And then we were sort of asked to try and cover those wards as well. And again, the unfamiliar settings, you know, nobody was happy to go work somewhere where they haven't before, not knowing the area, not knowing the people and the type of department it was. So it was, yeah, it was a whirlwind of challenges. And alhamdulillah, we, we did all get through it in the end. Yeah. I think, um, personally, I think the, the time of especially COVID-19, everybody has gone through it, but I think the nurses and the doctors have shown the courage to to you know remain staying there. I think it's <clears throat> it's, it's not even possible for for ordinary person. And you know that uh, you can catch that thing and and you know you can have a COVID and there's no remedy. You don't know how to tackle things. Anything can happen. And uh, you know standing there and uh, taking care of the patients is 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 you know amazing. It's I'm so just speechless. I've been listening to you and definitely. You know, you are leaving children behind and you know the family behind, and uh, you're just there. And most of them, you know, they unfortunately 
they they had to leave or they, they, they passed away because they were there the nurse a few of them and they showed you know in in, in encouragement in, they encouraged to be there and uh, you know uh, take care of the patients uh, it is amazing and uh, we pray that god bless you and everyone who who was there and uh, you know facing uh, and, and and become the front line so now moving on uh, to our second question as we're discussing nurses as you know nurses often play you know crucial role in bridging the gap uh, between hospitals and social care services so how, how do you see the relationship between healthcare and social care and what improvements or changes do you believe are needed to enhance uh, you know coordinate coordination and support for patient in both settings the relationship they they go hand in hand don't they they are their mm. service obviously um together with primary care services and being able to you know give the best quality of life for patients however i think there is a lack of awareness for them and there needs to be more education so um ever since again when covid hit it was merely impossible to try and access gp services you know mm. they were doing weren't doing any face to face consultations it was just over the phone and kind of aspect of healthcare was completely taken away from everybody that things are you know coming back to normality and things are up and running there needs to be more education on services in the community in the social and healthcare sector are available and it's about the accessibility of them so all that as i say i i work in the emergency department and the people that present with the most simplest things that actually could have been dealt with in a primary care setting but due to the lack of education and due to not knowing you know who to approach and the accessibility of these services people end up coming to the ae service as a first resort when really it should be the last resort mm-hmm. i feel like covid was 29 2019 we're 3 4 years on now and still to this day we are getting um people coming in to say oh my gp doesn't do face to face they said come to any so i think that needs to be looked into uh, at the governing body who's behind all this that they need to have a review of actually back up and running you know there's been so many changes that were implemented at the time there were so many restrictions however is coming back to normality then we should be doing more for people in the community setting mhm very much like- right yeah would like to say at something okay uh you know one of the thing uh, as you mentioned but one of the thing uh, nhs is facing is staff you know sh- shortages isn't it and uh, the issue is significant and is concerning for for healthcare how can increase investment in the social care sector contribute to alleviating uh, some of this you know staffing pressure faced by nhs and healthcare professionals um again with the i think it all talks sort of ties in together so if mm. they was to invest within the community with their own staff you know we hear it in the news all the time how the nhs is being stretched beyond its capacity and you know the long waiting times being able to access sort of wait people are on waiting lists for procedures and surgeries with regards to the staffing unfortunately that's across board isn't it it's with the doctors it's with the nurses is it generally in the whole healthcare sector um because of the education the, the main reason as well that there's been such a shortage of staffages 
the time it takes to for these qualifications to be completed for somebody to then be a qualified practitioner and if they invested more time and more financial contributions with their own staffing you know in the long run this can have a massive impact we can we're able to care for the patients properly so being so short staffed and not having the sheer amount of patients that are presenting in every area across the border it's putting so much pressure and then because of that then staff are going on stress leave staff are being off sick for such a long time because they're just not coping they need to look into investing more education and qualifications to speed up the process of these practitioners so they're able to qualify and be able to recruit them across the whole border very much right uh, one of the thing you know last i would lastly i would like to ask you know many individuals in our audience might be considering healthcare professions could you share your thoughts on the you know rewards and challenges of being an nhs nurse and what advice would you offer to those inspiring to join uh, you know a healthcare healthcare field um so first and foremost uh, with it being such a broad sector i think it's very important to pick a field pick a mm-hmm. role that you genuinely care about and you genuinely enjoy if you have an area that motivates you and provides positive experiences even when the work is hard i think you know you enjoy and you will do it the rewarding aspect of it as we all know you know you're making a difference in people's lives you're being there for them you're having a massive impact throughout their journey and not just with the patients it's with the families as well once they're involved you're interacting with so many people from different backgrounds different faiths and it's the people you come across and you end up building like a, a rapport and it does give you that satisfaction regardless of how stressful it does get in the end of it you know when that one person does appreciate for what you do for them and they mention it to you you forget everything else that's happened and it's the people coming from all walks of life where we live in a multicultural society so any kind of healthcare role you do pick you know you're able to give that extra support for you know if there's somebody with a language barrier or someone who has different cultural needs with us guys being into that role you're able to add that extra support for them Mm-hmm. And in regards to the um advice I think with healthcare being so constantly evolving there's so much new research coming up so much technology that's now in use new advancements coming in it's important to keep yourself informed so if you're unsure about what path it is you want to take try and keep up to date you know with what's happening with the latest advancement how you can help to pursue your career what a lot of organizations are also doing are the convents so where you're in like a substantial role already what they're doing in house opportunities where you can go off to try and go into a different role if that works for you so it's about being open to the new opportunities and having that mindset of being tried being able to try something new and keeping up to date with everything one of the thing aksa i would like to ask uh, at the end i know there was a last question one of the thing you know we've just asked for in in a in a one of the previous shows where we discussed the reward is given to nhs regardless you know nurses or doctors or anyone else 
you know, one thing was mentioned when the, you know, the nurses or the doctor, if they're not happy or they're not satisfied or there's something going on in their mind, the, you know, financial problems, and they're not happy in their field, they cannot, you know, give the best what they have, what they can give for, for, for people to take care of them. So what do you think about it? Is that right? It, with with it being such like a demanding and stressful role, hmm. the thing is, you're, when you're coming into this career path, and this hmm. is why I mentioned about, you should be aware of what it is that you're putting yourself into. Naturally, sure. of course, you know, when hardships we face and things like that, everyone reacts to it different. We do end up responding to it a different way. However, that should be something before stepping into a role like this, we should be aware of and we should know what is it the challenges that I will be faced with and should I, should I let that be affecting my patient care, my quality of care? Because mm. as you say, it's something that happens naturally and as much as we try to put it to the back of your mind and think, no, I'm not going to let it affect me, unfortunately, as we're all humans, it ends up coming up to the surface, doesn't it? And yes, it's not right, it's not fair on the patient, but mm. then that's his to the person who's wanting to put themselves out there in that field, they should be aware of these challenges and you know the pros and cons of being in a career like this, of what kind of things they will be expected to go through and they'll, they'll be facing. Mm. Yes, uh, you're very much right indeed. Uh, that's the case. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Aksasun, for joining us today and uh, you know going through the, these questions and giving us insight about how you felt in COVID pandemic and how everything you know happened. Even though we were at home, we were seeing things but we cannot see what was happening in front of you in the hospital i think that the place where much many things happened i think you don't want to go into it uh, again and again but anyways thank you very much uh, aksa for joining us today and uh, giving your time i was pleased speaking with you have a nice evening thank you so much for having me thank you so you were listening to aksa Asan, uh, who uh, you know was nhs nurse and she has given us the insight that how you know, in, in pandemic especially, they, they were taking care of, uh, you know, patient there and what the struggles, or, you know, what are the challenges they faced uh, in the COVID and how was the atmosphere and how they treated the patients. Uh, I hope uh, our listeners have listened to it and we are thankful to them, those who were there and served, you know, people knowing that there is a chance that they can catch that virus and they can be, you know, harmful to them. But uh, we we thank and uh, you know we, we we pray good for them. The Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He said that if a young man honors an elderly, an elderly on account of his age, Allah appoints someone to honor him in his old age. So that that much stress is laid upon you know looking after your elders and and that's why I mean that one of the major work involved in social care is the, is the elderly people and the adult social care so that is uh, that is part of part of our faith that we have to get involved into it whatever capacity if we can afford to um, you know give something financially that one should um, give that our current head of the Muslim community also said that the responsibility of care of the aged is gradually shifting to the state. Care of the aged represents a heavy burden on the national economy. However much a state is ready to spend, it can never buy them peace and contentment. It's the most terrible feeling of having been rejected, left out, and abandoned, and the most painful realization of a growing void of loneliness within 
are problems beyond the reach of many to resolve. To consider that a comparatively remote relative would ever be taken care of by the rest of the family has become almost impossible to imagine. In such societies, the need for homes for the age, um, age grows with the passage of time, uh, yet it is not always possible for a stage to, uh, to apportion enough money to provide for them even the minimum requirements for, for decent life. Physical ailments are much easier to cure or alleviate, but the deep psychological traumas from which a considerable number of federal members of modern societies are suffering are far most difficult to treat. So, so this is this is what is, um, you know, this is this what was said by the the fourth fourth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, and I think that that is the psychological aspect which is you know mm-hmm. away from our sight. That apart from that, yes, we are looking after their physical needs, but we also have to look look after them and be caring and be there for those who need need help. So this is in addition, and I think we have covered um, this topic and with our guests, they have spoken in in quite a few de- details and given the information and what we should be doing. So um, so with that, we end our show today and the, the social care, and we yeah. spoke earlier about the Girls' Day. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we'll uh, join you tomorrow on Voice of Islam.